And welcome to another Odyssey House Journals. I'm Trip Mitchell. That is Randall Carlisle. Hello, Trip. We have had fun today. We have. We've recorded, just inside information, we record a couple of these shows every other week. Right, so. and today we're doing three because I double booked. But uh, Yeah, but you know what? A ten grand a show for talent fees. I mean, I'm more than happy to do ten a day. Could we do I, five? You know, Alex Trebek, does he ever get a word wrong on Jeopardy? Cause he no, did. no, he's perfect. Or I don't know how they tape that. I mean, if there's a mistake, do they stop tape and they start have to, over again? I've never seen him make a mistake. I know. Well, maybe he never makes a mistake. Did you ever make a mistake? I I made mistakes, but not very many. Not I I really I, I, at the radio station, the big radio station I worked at years ago. They had a, a we were owned by RKO at the time. And we had a bunch of AM rock stations all over the country in L.A., Boston, New York, uh, where else? San Francisco. I can't remember. But the news guys, because we did this sensationalist 2020 news. Sure, CKLW. I grew up with it. And and the news guys, it was a contest. And they gave away, it was like a a 10-day trip to some exotic island or something for the the most error-free newscasts over a period of a month. So you so you fought like hell to just be perfect all the time so you could win this prize. So I sort of had that ingrained in me that you just don't make mistakes. Well, I never won the trip, but <laughs> my broadcasting career, I made a lot of mistakes. Yeah, well, because you were drinking a lot of the time. I, but I was very, I thought I was very good. Speaking of drinking... Did you see the headline in the D News a while ago, uh, a while back? Does the United States have a drinking problem? Uh, let oh, me think well, about that for a second. Okay. Uh, yes. And well, and the interesting aspect, and I'll just read just a little. While opioid-related deaths dominate recent headlines, even more people died as a result of drinking alcoholic beverages over the last two decades. And and I've seen article after article that that in in, a, in the U.S. every year. Tons more people die of alcohol and alcohol-related illnesses than die from opioid overdoses or meth overdoses. But that's what's getting publicity right now. But alcoholism still is the biggest substance use problem in America. And the thing about alcoholism is it could be anyone. Could be anyone. Could be you or me. Oh, which it is. Yeah, it was. <laughs> and Lee or, yeah. Lee behind the camera. I mean, there's just so many people that it affects. And, and it, it also is legal, but, which doesn't preclude somebody from becoming But in alcoholic. last week's show, you talked about 100 billion oxy pills being prescribed. Right. And that, that number is shocking. But Yeah, but think of, think, of how, think of how much booze is consumed every year in America. I mean... Between beer and hard, and hard spirits and wine, I mean, it's it just it's incalculable. Millions of gallons. You know? Oh yeah, no question. Yeah. So, oh. well, let's uh, introduce our guest this week. Alan, come on in. Alan Maxwell has been a friend of mine since I moved back here I'm, for the I'm last. Sorry to hear that. Alan. Seven years. <laughs> you, and you would claim being a friend with this guy? Well, he claims it. Oh, yeah, okay. All right. All right. Well, that's cool. Good point. But yeah. we volunteer at the same. We do some volunteer work together, and he is. Come up with the worst nickname for my skiing. He calls me Wedge. We were shooting a video the first year, and I don't think I was the one that came up with the name, but I've kept it a lot. Does that, yeah, mean, you've kept does that mean you're going down the hill like this yeah. all the time? Yeah. No, it, it was one aberrant no turn. No parallel turn. <laughs> it was one <laughs> it was turn that one went horribly turn. wrong. <laughs> and uh, but we've known each other for a lot of years, and Alan, you have talked about your story very openly, 
And that's why we wanted to have you on the sto- on the show because we get a chance to meet some incredible people yeah. who've gone through a lot, and no one's addiction is ever the same, and no one's recovery. And the reason we want to meet people like you is to get a chance for viewers at home to realize that their situation might seem very lonely, very isolated right now. There's a lot of help out there, and every story is different, and we learn a lot. So, and you're certainly not alone if you are sitting at home with that problem. I mean, yeah, you know. and our numbers are indicating that. So, tell me about how you started with alcohol and drugs. And oh wow, um, I mean, the first time that I tasted the magic, uh, I was probably about ten years old. Uh, my cousin and I, we started sniffing glue and drinking. You know, we were we were stealing whiskey, little mini bottles of whiskey from my uncle, and in a sixteen ounce Budweiser. Uh, the first time we did that, and a tube of glue and a plastic bag, we went up in the woods and got really loaded. And and how'd you know to do glue? I don't remember. I don't remember. It was just that's because you did glue. It was, it was, <laughs> it was, probably, it was probably my cousin's fault, you know, yeah. at the time. But uh, I'll throw him under the bus. But you know what I do remember is. Well, profoundly the, the feeling that I got from it. But I remember walking down the street. This was back in Connecticut. And uh, I can still to this day remember just walking down the street and just feeling of euphoria and loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, the absolute next opportunity I got to, to drink, I did. Uh, my mom and stepdad and sister all went out to dinner and I found a reason to stay home because I had planned on raiding the liquor cabinet. My mom drank fairly heavily. Uh, there was lots of stores available. And I drank a little bit of everything. And You were sampling. There was, well, yeah. And I, got, I can remember bits and pieces of the evening. I, I can remember trying to put myself in the dryer and turn it on. <laughs> but I couldn't figure out how to get that to work, luckily. You needed um, a second person there to turn yeah, it on. And I needed, ready there. Yeah, yeah. needed my yeah. sister to be yeah. home or something. But she would have been happy to do it. Um, but it just seemed like it would be a good idea. You know, my, my thinking about what would be a good idea is, is always <laughs> suspect. Yeah, when you um, first get into recovery, by the way, they tell you, if you have a thought, do the opposite. Call, call, call your, you know, your mentor or whatever and tell them because yeah. they need a good laugh. Um, but but what was significant about that night is that, you know, I drank to excess, I drank for effect, and... Um, I had never experienced anything quite like that before at that level. Um, went to bed, and when you're 10 years old and it's the first time you really got that drunk, you don't have the information that you learn over time. You know, I didn't know to put one foot on the floor when the bed started spinning. You know? <laughs> um, and so I got sick to my stomach. And um, I can still remember distinctly sitting in the bathroom and throwing up, getting sick. Sign of alcohol poisoning, but you know, I didn't know. My sister ratted me out, called my mom, because she thought I was dying. Mom thought I had probably poisoned myself with medications or something and and was like pleading with me to tell her what I had done. And she's holding me over the toilet, and I'm throwing up my dry heaving, and and I'm telling her, Mom, it's okay, I know what I'm doing. (laughs) And, And, you know, finally she promised to not be mad, and I told her, that I had a little bit to drink. And that was kind of the story of my drinking career was anytime anyone asked me what I, you know, how much did you do? Well, I, a little, you know. <laughs> at a time. A little, yeah, you'd swallow. Um, but she started laughing. And she thought, well, you'll get yours in the morning. 
Um, what was odd about my drinking history is that I never had a hangover. Um, all the drinking that I did for all the years that I did it, um, I mean, I would feel a little rough in the morning. Uh, I was never, I didn't have a great attitude, <laughs> but I never had a hangover. You know, I had friends that would be, they'd wake up the next morning and, be, and I had a buddy that had a really good friend who had bleeding ulcers and he'd wake up and throw up blood the next day and I'd look at him and go, God, if I got that bad, I'd quit. <laughs> you know, and um, you know, a little judgmental attitude, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was when I, and, and from then for the next 16 years, I drank and used as much and as often as I could because I, I loved everything about it. The transition from alcohol to drugs, was that pretty seamless? I did it on the same day. I was snipping glue and drinking on the same day. Oh, so you never, this went straight through. It was day one all the way, you know, and, and I didn't have drugs. I mean, drugs were harder to get because alcohol, as you said before, is legal and it was readily available. My mom, my, my parents drank and, you know, I was smoking cigarettes and drinking and doing whatever I could find. Your mom didn't continue to chuckle over the fact that you were drinking No, so she much. was mad. I came down for breakfast the next day and she was cooking breakfast, figuring that she'd have a nice breakfast and I'd be sick as a dog. And I walked in and I had partially remembered the evening. It was kind of brown out, you know, I walked in and said, oh, what's for breakfast? I smelled the bacon cooking, you know. She was so mad. <laughs> did she know that you continued or did you do a better job of hiding it? Um, you know, I, I didn't really get caught. That was the one thing, you know, I never troubled the law or anything like that over the years. Um, I was maybe a good criminal or I was lucky or, what, or whatever, but uh, the legal ramifications. I did get caught for smoking pot in high school once and got kicked out of military school. I was in military school for two years. That's a and, tough penalty. <laughs> well, that was, yeah. I mean, I was in military school and got caught for smoking pot in military school. Right. Um, and anyway... Uh, you know, it, I grew up um, my, between my, my dad being in the military and then being a pilot and my folks getting divorced and remarried and stuff. We moved a lot, and I was never in one place more than two years. So I was always the new kid in school. I was always, you know, the littlest guy with the biggest mouth. And I was fighting all the time, you know. And, um, you know, I was lonely and different. I never fit in. So drugs and alcohol was a great way to cope with, with that stuff. I mean, I could drink most of the people I knew under the table and, um, and still drive. <laughs> yeah, I'm not proud of that, but, yeah, I was but it say, was that's true. nothing to brag about. Yeah, but. no, but I mean, and, and I got away with a lot of things. Well, you matriculated to some drugs that are a little rougher on you than glue. Yeah, well, it's, I actually stopped sniffing the glue when I was about 12 because I started noticing uh, short-term memory loss. And... You know, it was it was just something that I observed and, and thought attributed it to the glue. Whether it was, it probably was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> was, you know, um, and around the same time, I was introduced to marijuana, and I started smoking that. Loved it. Um, and uh, within the next, I mean, I didn't really progress to a lot of the other stuff. I found LSD and stuff in high school and that was great. Found quaaludes in high school. That was like drinking really heavily but not having the smell. So when you're in military school or in prep school you could get away with it easier. Um, quaaludes were great. <laughs> um, I never met a drug I didn't like. I, Until I've never when? seen Randall shake his head like that. Well, no, I mean, I, it's a good, good story, but obviously something happened at some point because you're, you're, you're describing 
everything you did that you liked it. I enjoyed the heck out of it, right? Okay. And then, and did, you know, my drug of choice was more, preferably yours. <laughs> yeah, well. And and um, and I did that for a long time. And, you know, I lived in Park City and I, I was embedded in the culture up there. And I sold a lot of drugs to support my habit and, and whatnot. Um, I don't know how I stayed out of jail or, or didn't get busted, but I did. Um, my bottom was more of a, I, I, would, I would lean towards physical, but it really wasn't, I mean, I wasn't so impressed with the physical part of it. I was in denial about a lot of that, but it was more emotional. Uh, you know, I got into a relationship and that fell apart and it devastated me. And, you know, I came home one day and, and my girlfriend was hiding behind the door in my apartment. Now, I was selling a lot of cocaine and doing a lot of stuff up there. I was smoking a lot of freebase. Um, I got to the point where, this was in June of 1989, I got to the point where I was about um, six foot one, 115 pounds, and pretty much half dead, you know. Um, I felt like I was doing great. Now, I, I, <laughs> I mean, that, that's BS, right? I, I, yeah. I really wasn't. But, but I had gotten to that point where I really wanted to stop and I couldn't. You know, I wouldn't have admitted that out loud. But I knew I was, I was filled with shame about what I was doing, and, and um, uh, I was doing everything that I had. Were you a pretty substantial dealer in Park City? Were you... um, I supported myself. I, you know, I, I don't know. I moved a lot of product. And know? Park City kind of, and I moved here. In, in the 80s, we, we, there was a lot of product to move. Yeah, Tom Barberi, the disc jockey, used to say Park City where adulthood it was legalized, but it was a lot more than that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it was a, it was it was neat being up there during that period of time. Park City is very very different now. Um, I worked in a lot of places and, and did a lot of things with uh, some very interesting people. Um, but I I got to that point where I just couldn't do it anymore. You know. Uh, I because can, well, this relationship fell apart, right? Okay. And and um, or it was on its way to falling apart. And I was delusional about it, anyways. I mean, I went to military school when I was fourteen, and it was an all boys girl, uh, school. So I was really meant, you know, for lack of a better way, of putting it retarded as far as relationships <laughs> went and things like that. You know, I was super needy and 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 lonely, and, and it felt inadequate underneath it all, anyways. No matter what I presented outside um, and and this thing was falling apart and I came home one day and she says pack your bags you're going to treatment and I had a, a lot of money stashed in the ceiling and some product and, and this and that and um, I'm like well I can't go I have responsibilities I had, a, I had a business on the side I was doing some computer stuff for people and, and it was this little side business I did which was all BS right I just didn't want to go right now because I thought going to treatment meant you'll never use again. It's going to be this magical thing and, and suddenly... Your the, fun period. The fun of life is done, right? Right. And I had no perspective of it. And so, and I said, well, she says, how much time do you need? I said, well, give me a couple hours. And so I took that couple hours and I cleaned up some things and I, and what I did was I made about, I took about an eight ball of cocaine and I made some freebase out of it. And then I, a guy who I used to, to party with a lot had gotten sober about 60, 90 days before me. And she and he conspired together to drive me down to uh, what was then Western Institute. 
and we pulled into the parking lot and uh you know, I went in and they made me wait. They said the intake guy was was um, busy, had to wait a little bit in the waiting room. And so I kept forgetting something out in the car. <laughs> and I smoked that whole freebase, that whole thing down the way down there. But I kept going out there. I scraped the pipe and I'd do a few hits in the parking lot and then come back in. And I'm still thinking this is it. This is the last time I'm going to use the rest of my life. Wow. And um, and then they interviewed me and I told them a little bit of the truth. And, and they said, well, you know, your insurance won't, we, we won't honor your insurance. You can't come here. And Western Institute at the time was like the primo place, right, to go to treatment. Um, but they referred me to an outpatient program. Now, this was June 13th, 1989. And I went to this outpatient program, and I continued to smoke what I had left on the way to that one. Now, I'm sitting in the back of the seat of a car with this girlfriend who was as much an addict as I was, and this friend of mine, who is still today a friend of mine, um, who had just gotten sober. And I can't imagine being the person driving that car with my buddy in the back seat smoking what we smoked, you know. Um, so what I did to him was really unconscionable, but I had no perspective. Right. Of, you know? right. Um, so we went to this place, and, and I met this woman. Her name, name was Gail. Um, and, uh, and she's she's still involved in the recovery community, Gail Stringham, and a uh, very, very good friend of mine today. And she had me fill out, she asked me those questions, you know, the very uncomfortable questions about how much I used and how much right. I drank. And, right. and and I minimized everything. And at the end of it, she You're says, probably the first one ever to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I minimized all of it. And, and at the end, she says, well, you are an alcoholic and a drug addict, which... You know, knowing what I know now is like, we don't do that, right? right. We, don't, we don't die. She flat out told me, you, know, you are. <laughs> and uh, she gave me a piece of paper to sign, which I still have somewhere folded in a, in a folder, um, where I signed this piece of paper saying I would go to so many 12-step meetings a week, and I would come to their group twice a week, and I would not drink and I would not use. Until you got out to the car. <laughs> well, I, yeah. Um, I have no idea why. But I continued to go to that meeting at twice a week from June until September. And I continued to dig a deeper hole and getting down to the bottom deeper and deeper and deeper and continuing to relapse over and over and over. I never went to a 12-step meeting, <laughs> you know, because I, because I lived in Park City and all that was up there was AA and I really just had a problem with cocaine and, you know... <laughs> And so I did, she'd say, and I'd come in and, and I would get high in the elevator on the way to group. <laughs> and she didn't know because I was very good at doing what I did, you know. And I would I'd get high in the elevator and she'd say, you know, when was the last time you got high? And I'd say, well, a few hours ago. I'd lie. I'd minimize. And, and then I would leave group to use the restroom and get high in the restroom and come back. And she didn't know that either. I told her when I was a year sober. And she no longer lets people go to the restroom <laughs> when they're in group. Um, I ruined it for everybody, which was great because that aftercare, I was, they were all pissed at me. Um, but uh, she would ask me, why are you here? And I didn't know. I had made this commitment to go. I mean, and I tried to keep my word. I couldn't keep my word about not using, but I showed up to this thing twice a week and continued to dig that bottom. And then sometime in August, um, the girl left... I hit that emotional bottom and I was just wrung out and I finally went to a meeting and I, I walked in and some people were getting a birthday cake for a couple of years sober and my first thought was 
wow, how do you do that? How do you, how do you not drink? And, and these people looked reasonably happy, right? <laughs> how do you not drink and use How's that possible? for two years? <laughs> and my next thought was, well, why would you want to? <laughs> well, you know, that was a really serious profound, thought yeah, for me. I mean, and, and, and I had no concept, right? I thought, it's over now. Here I am, you know. I'm, my life's I'm, done. I'm, I'm not, I'm, this is the drink. Drinking and using was like, you know, sobriety was like the waiting period between drinking and using, having fun, and dying. You know, you don't And have a, you look at it kind of in biblical terms. There's BC, that was all the fun, and AD, and not as much fun. Yeah, that's more deep than I want to get. But Speaking of deep, <laughs> we're, we're going to take a short break. You're watching Odyssey House Journals, visiting with Alan Maxwell. We'll be right back. Thanks. And welcome back to Odyssey House Journal's Trip Mitchell, Randall Carlisle. We're visiting with my buddy, Alan Maxwell. And we're going back to all of a sudden you had been not a model person at your twice a week. <laughs> causing lots of bladder problems in the future. Because Yeah, well, you know, I, I got to that point finally where I went to the, the first meeting. And I, I, sat, I went every day I could. There was, I think, six meetings a week in Park City at the time. And... and um, and I went every chance I got. And, but I was smoking pot on the side. And feeling guilty about it, but going anyway. Sure. And then I relapsed one more time. Um, I remember that night I, I called up a hotline for a 12-step program, and this poor girl answered the phone. It's about midnight. And, um, and I had just, I mean, so recovery... 12-step groups kind of talk about this pitiful and comprehensible demoralization point, right? This, this place where you're just, you're empty. Right. And I hit that. And, and I had relapsed. I had gotten a bunch of cocaine. I cooked it up. I smoked like an eight ball of cocaine in like 30 minutes. Jeez. And I didn't get high. And it was good. It wasn't like it was garbage or anything like that. I mean, I knew what I was doing. <laughs> um, and I, and I was like stone cold sober and totally emotionally wrecked. Um, so the magic wasn't working anymore. And I call up this hotline and this poor girl answers the phone and she says to me, she says, you're supposed to call us before you. <laughs> well, it doesn't work that way. And I kind of looked at the phone and I said, why? <laughs> Cause I still didn't get it. Right. Um, I had called up one of the local treatment centers. Uh, a, a, a guy who became a good friend of mine was the director uh, at the Haven. And I, I called up and he answered the phone. This was before I went to that outpatient program. And I, and I said, you know, I'm interested in your program. And what can you tell me about it? And, and he, said, uh, he said, well, stay clean and sit, don't drink and don't use any drugs for three days and then come down and see us. This was their process, right? And then we'll interview you and see if you're appropriate right. for the program. And I looked, again, looked at the phone, right? I looked at the phone and I said, well, if I could stay clean and sober for three days, I what, wouldn't need to the program. And I hung up on him. Wow. <laughs> I didn't talk to him for a few years after I got, till I got sober and then we ran into each other and became friends. Wow. And you've got how much sobriety now? 30? Um, just celebrated 30 years last September. Wow. And so did you do it through treatment or just going to meetings? Well, or? I did that outpatient program. And I did that religiously. It was before they had these formalized IOP programs or any of that stuff. So it was twice a week we'd come down and do a group. And then they encouraged you to go to 12-step to programs. Um, 
and and I did. I mean, I I when I finally hit that bottom and surrendered, for me, you know, I found that I got I got fed in in the twelve step groups. Um, one of the guys that I used to use and drink with ended up becoming my sponsor because two other guys turned me down to start with. Um, <laughs> I don't want you. <laughs> well, I was really needy and, and mm. I couldn't sit still and I couldn't shut up. I was 115 pounds. I had nothing going for me. Um, I found out later uh, a friend of mine told me, uh, who is still a good friend of mine, that they used to like arrange to sit with me in shifts because I was so toxic. <laughs> and. And I didn't know they were doing that. It was just like somebody else was there and I was talking to them. Oh, hi. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I was a mess. And uh, for the first couple of years, I was pretty miserable. But I did not, you know, it was like, don't drink and don't use no matter what. And I did that. Um, I didn't need a bullet. There were, I, I, I never thought about killing myself before I got sober. But after I got sober, I ended up getting... Uh, a handgun, which I decided to carry with me everywhere I went. Um, well, if you are 115 pounds with a mouth, not a bad idea to, you know. Well, you know, it, it's not something I've, I've never thought of pulling a weapon on anybody. Um, it, it is a comforting feeling knowing that you can sometimes. I guess. Um, but, I mean, I went to an AA meeting once. We started a new meeting in Park City. This became a much bigger story but the truth is it only happened once Uh, we started a 745 attitude adjustment meeting and um, I walked in there and then I pulled the 45 out of my belt and racked the magazine out and emptied the magazine put the gun on the table and then we had an AA meeting wow Um, they didn't kick me out of the meeting Um, I I played with the bullets during the meeting you know I wasn't wrapped very tight you know, jeez. Um, but I was desperate, and I was willing to do whatever it took to not drink and not use. And so I went to lots of meetings. I got worked with my sponsor. I was told to do the steps or die, and so I did. You know, I did. I did the work that I was told to do. Um, you tell great stories. Uh, it's very entertaining. It, it, does, do you find that to? help you in your recovery by sharing stuff like this? I mean, because well, you're interesting as hell to listen to. My, my hope is that, you know, somebody will hear what I, what I share and at some level relate to it, you know. And that's why Alan was nice enough to come on the show. Yeah. And I had sent a show out for you to listen to because I'm very proud of it. And I never got it. And you, you said you listened to it. I've never seen, I've never seen your show. <laughs> Sorry, you may have me confused with someone else. Well, another Alan. That <laughs> another I drink trip. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Well, he's our computer expert too, which is ironic. So, be that as may, thank you for coming on. Because You'll never forgive me now. Well, it, it you know we're it, it, it's funny because all of a sudden when we start to hear the numbers of the people that are listening, it just became a shock. And what I found is the addiction recovery community in the state of Utah is. Very large, number one. Very large. Number two, very interested in, in learning more. And, and that's why we're excited to do this show. And you've been a great guest. And I've heard you speak before. I haven't heard you at a speaker's meeting, but... I've I spent way too much time talking about what it was like while I was drinking and using. And some of that stuff's entertaining, and I, and I make a little light of it. And you kind of picked up on that before. Yeah, but, yeah. but the truth is, is that I got to that point where, you know... I we talk about this jumping off place, right? And I was clearly there. It was like, it was one way or the other. 
and luckily for me, I got I, I was pushed into this this direction of recovery, and I was willing to do whatever it took, um, in spite of the insanity, sober and using. Um, you know, I, it's been a long time since I put a gun on the table. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I sat down like at an AA meeting and I saw somebody do that, I don't know what I'd think. Well, and I, I would think know. the same thing today, right? I would, I would probably, I would like to think that I would, you know, talk to the person. Um, I think the guy is a whack job, and I'm not sure I want to stay in this AA meeting. And frankly, the people that saw Alan do this probably thought the same thing. There were only four other people in the room. Oh, okay. It was a new meeting. meeting. It was quarter to seven in the morning. Okay. You know, but agreed, you know. And they, I had been going to meetings for quite a while. They knew who I was. And I, and I clearly, well, okay, well, I wasn't a threat to them whether they knew that or not, you know. I was actually sucking on the gun barrel at night. Ooh. And... Um, there's, there's a long story associated with me getting the firearm, but uh, the, the truth is is that some of my, uh, I'm a very visual person, a very imaginative person, and, and um, the idea that somebody else would have to clean up the mess is often, a number of times, prevented me from pulling the trigger. Because wow. um, I couldn't see myself doing that to someone else. And, but the pain got bad enough where it was a... a, a a very real consideration. How many years sober were you at this time? Uh, that was between the first two years. Okay. In, so in that period. Wow, that's tough. We have unfortunately run out of time, but your story is kind of amazing. I've heard you tell it before and you're a very compelling storyteller. But the fact is you've been thirty years without a drink or a drug. Well we didn't really touch on the spiritual journey at all and, and the truth is is that for me it has been primarily that. And it was the irony of that is that when I walked into the rooms, that was absolutely not what I want, was I, I was looking for. I was very opposed to that idea. So. Well, we'll have you back, and we'll get some more of your recovery. <laughs> okay. Thank you, sir. Thank nice you. It was intriguing. I'm, I'm, I, I, I was mesmerized the whole time. So. You're, that's fantastic, and hopefully you are too. So what do people need to do if they're listening? Call, call this number. We're not going to twist your arm and say come to our place, but it's the Odyssey Admissions Office and Information Center, 801-322-3222. And for those questions, it's a great organization to call. There are a lot of people out there that are really specifically here to help in the state of Utah. We're very lucky. For Randall Carlisle, my buddy Alan Maxwell, I'm Trip Mitchell. Lee behind the camera. We'll see you next time. Thanks for watching.